Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. It goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Our Father, we claim these promises for these hundreds of children this week who came onto our campus, scores who have no other spiritual instruction from the Bible but what they received here. We thank you for the body of Christ that was at work, for the powerful way in that which your people came together with all their talents and gifts and built into these little lives. Give us opportunity in days ahead to reach those who have not yet been reached and even their parents who might come today and in weeks to come. Now we claim the Word of God and its power over our lives today as we read it, as we study it, that we would be changed by it. So help me in all the services today and again tonight with Meet the Pastor. May Christ be lifted up and glorified, we pray in His holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. This passage is much more than a funeral text. It's for us today. And this chapter opens with the teaching that there is no condemnation, and it ends with the truth that there is no separation. And there's an ocean of truth between those two points. If you've been with us, we just completed the epistle of James, and we're between books, and so I have some special messages that God has laid on our heart. And this morning, we're going to look at the last 12 verses here of chapter 8. And as you read it, you can almost feel Paul's excitement in these final paragraphs of the 8th chapter. He looks at the whole purpose of God from eternity past into eternity future. And he makes it clear that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. To give us context, I want to begin reading in verse 28, follow along, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, by the way, that's what the doctrine of predestination is. It's not that God chooses you for hell and you for heaven. It's He's predestined you to a purpose, and that is to make you like Jesus Christ. That's the context. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me walk you into the context of the passage. Though not our focus, verses 28 to 30, 
is reminding us that God is working all things together for good to those who love God. And He gives us a chain of salvation, five links that are unbroken. The first link refers to those whom God foreknew, the last link, those whom He glorified. And it's all in a past tense, if you will notice, meaning it is as good as done. Now, the doctrine of glorification is when in the twinkling of an eye, God will transform your body and give you a resurrection body like Christ. Experientially, I am waiting for it, but positionally, God reminds us in this passage, it is as good as done, it is credited to my account in heaven. And so verses 29 and 30 give us a picture that there's no leakage between God's calling and God's glorifying us. Now, this becomes the basis not only for our assurance of salvation, but also for the doctrine of eternal security. There are some Christians who say, I'm assured today that I'm going to heaven. I just don't know that tomorrow, next week, next month, I might lose my salvation. And so while they affirm assurance, they do not affirm eternal security. And it's possible for someone who has come to Christ not to understand the great doctrine of eternal security. But God wants you not only to know that you can be assured of your salvation, but you can be eternally secure. And if you don't believe that, you need to listen carefully today because you do not want to misrepresent the living God in saying that you can lose your salvation if that is not true. And so it's possible to have assurance but to doubt eternal security. You say, is doubt good? No, doubt is bad. Doubt is like pain to the body. Pain is a warning. It's a signal that there's something wrong. It doesn't mean that you're dead. It just means something that is wrong. And if you have doubts over the doctrine of eternal security, then you're suffering from a spiritual sickness that I believe God wants to cure. And so you can see the message this morning in your note-taking outline is our great salvation. And in verses 31 to 39, the Apostle Paul gives five affirmations so that without any doubt, we can know that we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. The first affirmation, the first declaration there in verse 31 is the child of God can have no successful opposition. The child of God can have no successful opposition. Notice how verse 31 opens with a question. What then shall we say to these things? Paul's first question in verse 31 makes no sense apart from the context in verses 28 to 30. Remember, he's speaking to a particular group of people, to those who love God. He's speaking to saved people, to those who've been regenerated. This is not a promise that applies to everyone. It's a promise that God works everything together for good to those who love Him, to those who've been regenerated, to those who are a part of, it's literally a, a noun, it looks like a verb in the NES, to those who are the called. He's speaking to a specific group of people. And God is working things out to make us like His Son. And so to answer his own question, I want you to notice he asked five more questions that are declarations of our eternal security. And if we are to understand the significance of these five questions that he does not answer, then we must understand why it is that he does not answer them. You see, the reason he does not answer them is because there's an implication, there's an implied truth in every question that he is asking. Notice the first question. It serves as an introduction. If God is for us, who is against us? If is not a, a condition of doubt here, it's a first-class conditional statement in Greek, meaning something that is sure. You could translate it sense, but for emphasis, it's translated if. He's already said back in verse 9 of this chapter, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and He does, if the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and He did... If God is for us, and He is, then who is against us? Practically speaking, there is absolutely no effective opposition against the child of God. Look, you would have to be stronger than God 
to change God's ways. And God is almighty. There is no one greater than God, and therefore no one can frustrate or oppose God's purposes. There is no one out there anywhere in the whole universe that can take on God Almighty. That's the first affirmation, no successful opposition. Second there in your outline, the child of God can have no successful deprivation. The second affirmation is that the child of God can have no successful deprivation. Let's read now verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The implied answer, of course, is he will. He will give us all things. Paul's effectively saying, how is it that we know that God is for us? How is it that we can be certain that God is on our side? What is the proof? And the answer is, is that he gave his son. How can I be possibly certain that God will stick with me, that God will be faithful to me, that God will even take care of the needs that I have. And Paul's answer is the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so the second question tells us that, that not only is there no effective opposition, there's absolutely no deprivation of any kind. You might want to go home and study Romans 5, 1 through 11. It's divinely inspired logic that the Spirit of God gives through Paul's pen. It's what we call an ar fortiori argument. Fortiori is, of course, the Latin that means uh, from the stronger. And so he gives from a greater to the lesser argument. In other words, if God could do the greater thing, then God can do the lesser thing. It was a common first century Roman form of reasoning, and yet Paul uses this, but he does it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. A greater to lesser argument. When the Father gave His Son, He gave us everything. When the Bible says here that He delivered Him over for us all, the Greek verb that is used refers to a voluntary act in other words, he gave him over, he handed him over. Because when you hand something over, it indicates that you're still in charge. Now think your way through this. When it says here that God delivered him up to be crucified on the cross, understand it was not Judas for money that caused this to happen. It was not Caiaphas for envy that caused this to happen. It was not Pilate for fear that caused this to happen. It was not the Jews for spite that caused this to happen. Very clearly, the point here is that, that it was the Father who delivered him over, not for money, not for envy, not for spite, not for fear, but for the love of God, for God demonstrates His love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest proof that God is on our side, that God does not oppose us, is the cross. Do you understand what he's saying here? If God did not spare his own son, that's the greater act, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If there was ever a time when God could back out of a promise, it would be the promise beginning in Genesis 3 all unfolded all the way through the Old Testament that he would send the Christ, the Messiah, to die for us. And if there was ever a time when he might back out of a promise, it would be in the giving of his son. But God is immutable. He never changes. He cannot lie. He keeps every promise. And of course, in the immediate context, people quote Romans 8, 28, and they can legitimately apply it to many situations, but don't miss its context. He's saying God works everything together for good, that what He began, He will complete, that those whom He foreknew, He glorified. That's the promise. And if God could do the greater thing, He will certainly do the lesser thing. He will freely give us all things. The cross is God's guarantee of our security that the good work that God began, He will complete for the day of Christ Jesus. Now we come to the third of five affirmations. Some of you don't have a Bible because you need one. Come tonight to meet the pastor and you'll get a beautiful Bible. Tonight at 
5.30. Affirmation three, the child of God can have no successful accusation. The child of God can have no successful accusation. Look now at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You could paraphrase this. Who is qualified to bring a charge against the child of God? Who can possibly accuse a genuine believer? If this question stood alone, there might be many voices that would raise accusations. Our own conscience sometimes condemns us. According to Revelation 12 and verse 10, the devil never ceases to accuse the people of God before the throne of God. Many people will point their finger of condemnation at you, but none of their accusations could ever be sustained. Why? Because Paul states, God is the one who justifies. The supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe has declared us righteous, and there's absolutely nothing that can reverse that decision. God is saying, you are righteous. The word justification is more than just as if you never sinned. It also means just as if you had always obeyed. God not simply wipes the slate clean. He credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. And unless you are covered this morning in the righteousness of Christ, if you die or Christ returns, you will spend an eternity separated from Him. Now, we may not always like it that people will point the finger at us and that the devil will accuse us, but God is the one who justifies. God has declared His people righteous and holy in His sight. Now, we may not always act like it, but it is true of the genuine child of God. There's no church tradition, no person, no act, no sin that can ever sever an eternal relationship with God. Eternal life is what we call it. The one who believes has, not will have, has right now today eternal life because eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is eternal, which is why you ask people, you don't ask people, would you like to know about temporary life? <laughs> you ask them, would you like to know about eternal life? You don't ask, would you like to know about the doctrine of eternal insecurity? No, you tell them about the doctrine of eternal security. Now, that brings us to the fourth affirmation, the fourth affirmation there on your outline that without doubt, you might know that you are eternally secure. There is no successful opposition against the Christian because if God is for us, who can be against us? Absolutely no one. There's no successful deprivation against the Christian because God who gave His own Son, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? The promise that He made that those whom He called, He will glorify is a settled promise. There's no successful accusation because no one in all the universe can bring a charge against God's elect, and the child of God can have no successful condemnation. Look now, if you will, at verse 34, verse 34 in your Bible. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Now, verse 34 begins with a question, who is the one who condemns? And the answer to that question is that there are many who would bring a word of condemnation against God's people. People will often condemn other people about their sin. Why? Because it gives them an excuse to be happy in their own rebellion. Sometimes our own heart condemns us. Paul speaks of that. Sometimes our critics condemn us. Our enemies will be quick to attack us and to condemn us. And I've already noted the accuser of the brethren habitually condemns the people of God. But technically... There is only one who can condemn us, and that one is the ultimate judge, and we call Him Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that all judgment has been given to the Son. Listen to these words in John 5, 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. That means if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, and you die without a saving, regenerating, life-changing knowledge of Him, 
then the one who loves you, who wants to be your savior, will someday become your judge. But it also means if you are saved, he will never condemn you. Follow closely his argument. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. He died for the very sins that would otherwise condemn us. He condemned sin in the body of Christ. Peter wrote, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. This is why the Apostle Paul can open this great chapter with the words of 8 in verse 1. Therefore, there is now, circle that word now, in verse 1, there is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That three-letter word emphasizes the truth that I do not have to wait for the final judgment to find out whether or not I am accepted by God. However, if salvation is predicated on my human effort in some way, shape, or form on my performance, which is what most people think, they see works not as the fruit of conversion but also as a root of conversion then God could never make the promise of Romans 8.1. He promised us there is now, today, not later, but now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am eternally secure. I am not condemned. There is now no condemnation. No one can condemn me because God has already condemned sin and has substitute the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading further into verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. After he died, Christ Jesus was raised. It was not just that he rose, but he was raised by the Father. Now, you cannot dissect the Trinity. There is one God, but he exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so throughout Scripture, you see each member of the Godhead working together. Who gave you a spiritual gift? You say the Holy Spirit did. He did, but so did Christ according to Ephesians 4, and so did God the Father according to Romans 12. Who created the world? You say God the Father did, yes, but all things were created through Christ, and the Spirit was involved in creation, the Bible teaches. And so who raised Christ from the dead? Now, this slide might be helpful to you, understand that Jesus was involved in his own resurrection. There's a slide there somewhere, is there? There we go. All right. See, it's just like that. All you have to do is click your fingers. <laughs> the son was involved. He said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again, John chapter 10. At the start of his ministry, Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. I will raise it up. He's speaking of his own power to take up his life out of the grave. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, is involved in this process of bringing us out of the grave. He was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Paul will write. So while both the Son and the Spirit are involved in the resurrection of Christ, ultimately God the Father is emphasized and given the credit for the resurrection from the dead. And there are many passages that affirm that. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And he said, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God, speaking of the Father, but God raised him up again. And then in the end of the sermon, he says, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In his second sermon in Acts 3, he said, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, in fact, to, a fact to which we are witnesses. So when Paul affirms here, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who is raised, this statement is significant. It's keying off of a great prophecy found in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, because when God the Father, through the Son, and by the agency of the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying, I've accepted his death. I've accepted the wrath I've poured out upon my sinless son, and I have demonstrated he is God the Son when I raised him from the dead. So no one can condemn us 
because God the Father has received Christ's death as a payment, and so there is no condemnation. Look again at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Not only did Jesus die for us and was raised for us, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he intercedes for us. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. This one was actually built perfectly based on the actual uh, dimensions that are given in the Old Testament. Some of you you were with me when we were in Israel, and we saw some born-again Jews who use this as a witnessing tool out there in the desert. Some years ago at our vacation Bible school, our children built an Old Testament tabernacle. And the children learned that while in the tabernacle there were many pieces of furniture, there were no chairs. There was no place for the high priest to sit down. When the high priest went into uh, the Holy of Holies or the various places to make different kinds of sacrifices, he could never sit down. The writer to the Hebrews keys off of that. Listen to these words. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done. But not only did he sit down because his payment for sin was eternally paid for and complete, the text says he also intercedes for us. The Bible calls the Lord Jesus our advocate with the Father. And so when Satan accuses us, he intercedes for us. Now, do you think Judge Jesus is going to condemn us? The one who died for you, the one who was raised for you, the one who was seated for you, the one who's interceding for you? I tell you, no, he will not. He will not condemn you because as the chapter begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the fifth affirmation concerning our great salvation so that we might know without any doubt that we can never, ever lose our salvation, that we are eternally secure in Christ. The child of God can have no successful separation. The child of God can have no successful separation. Notice the fifth question that he asked beginning here in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ. Now, the devil would like you to believe that you can be separated from the love of Christ. He has convinced some Christians of the false doctrine that you can lose your salvation. By the way, that doctrine did not appear in the history of the church until the 16th century as Jacobus Arminius introduced it. But it is wrong. The Bible teaches that once we are saved, we are saved forever. But the devil would like you to believe that there's grounds for which you can be opposed. The devil would like you to believe that there are grounds for which you can be accused. The devil would like you to believe that there are grounds for which you can be condemned. The devil would like you to believe that there are needs that God will not meet. The devil would like you to believe that somehow you can be separated from the love of God. And so in this final paragraph, where we will spend most of our time this morning, here in Romans 8, Paul asks questions about the persistent, never-ending, steadfast love of God in Christ. Here in verses 35 to 39, Paul answers, he stresses, he highlights, he accentuates, and he illustrates not only the tenacity, but the permanency of Christ's love for the believer. He anticipates... Someone reading the letter to possibly ask, but Paul, there are things that happen in this life that are very difficult. Maybe these are evidences that God has stopped loving me. And so Paul begins here in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation. No, tribulation cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Now, some of your translations say trouble. But the King James and the New American Standard, with great precision and accuracy, translates it tribulation, because there's a difference between troubles and tribulations. 
I prefer this reading tribulations because though we tend to blend it together in English and we just speak of, you know, trials and tribulations as being all the same thing, they are clearly not in Scripture. Tribulations do not refer to your aches and pains, your fears, your sicknesses, your frustrations, your heartaches, your disappointments in life. Now, certainly all tribulations are a kind or a type of trial, and so it would fit under the admonition that we studied months ago, last December in James, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But while all tribulations are a kind of trial, not all trials are a kind of tribulation. And there's a distinction. He's already illustrated in Romans chapter 5 this Greek word, thalipsis. It's a word that means pressure. And it refers to the pressure or the opposition of an unbelieving world on the believer. The word is a technical term that is used of the suffering that God's people experience at the hand of unbelievers. And Jesus reminds us in the last of the last days, it will certainly increase. Speaking of that time frame during the tribulation, Jesus said, for those days will be a time of tribulation, thalipsis such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Once the church is removed, the birth pangs begin to unfold. The birth pangs have not yet come. People broadly say, well, we're in the birth pangs and hurricanes. No, they're not here yet. The first half of Matthew 24 perfectly parallels Revelation 6. And then there's an event in the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. People's breath is taken away because now they can see all the judgments that will follow after the seals, and they will see the uh, bold judgments and all that will happen. Tribulation. But we have it today. The church has already and always known it. And though we may not be in the birth pangs, I'm telling you, we're full term. (laughs) The pregnancy is ready to let loose. The water is ready to break. God is coming to catch up His church. I think of these children here, and I think of the abuse that is going on in our nation against children. They're being taught in the government schools in Beaufort County to question your gender whether you're a boy or a girl. Little kids are being taught this garbage. And that's what it is. It is sheer, unadulterated garbage. And now at the Olympics, we've got some guy who is now a girl lifting weights, and he's the champion. He's no champion in my eyes. John writes these words. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Same word, thalipsis. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so in Bible days, the word thalipsis was used outside of the Bible to describe a heavy sled weighted down that was dragged over stalks of wheat to separate the heads of the grain from the chaff. In Latin, it's tribulum, which gives us our word tribulation. And it's a word that refers to when life is crushing you because unbelievers are opposing you. Even today, we sometimes loosely say, well, I feel like a truck ran over me, or my spirit has just been crushed by the blows of life. And Paul warns that this can happen through tribulation. He told those saints, Joel would never tell you this, through many tribulations, the ellipses, same words, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation cannot separate us from the love of God. Jesus said, in the world you will have thalipsis, tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So the heartless tribulation of an ungodly world can have no part in separating you from God's love. And God wants to make it clear that when these things happen, they happen for a purpose. He has already said He's working everything together for good to shape us into the image of His Son. And by the way, the servant is not greater than his master. If they did these things to the master, they will do them to his people. So mark tribulation off the list. Look at the next one, distress. 
distress. If you really want to feel for the Greek word, just knock off the first two letters of distress and you've got the Greek meaning, stress. Stress, it's actually a, a compound word. And uh, it was used to describe a, a narrow place, like a narrow pass in the mountains. That's one half of the word. And the other half of the word meant to, to press. And putting them together, it carries the idea of to confine, to squeeze, to compress you. Now, we all have obligations and responsibilities and duties in this life that sometimes seem to box us in. Perhaps you feel like you're in a dead-end job this morning, or maybe you feel like you're squeezed because you have no job at all. Perhaps you feel squeezed by some health challenges or financial obstacles or some family issues, and you feel somewhat bound and boxed in and pressed by the daily ground of life. Your space is narrow. You're under distress. By the way, you ever wonder why when they do advertisements, they always do it in these wide open spaces? You know, a woman's out in the middle of a field on some mountain, you know, hanging her clothes. And I mean, who washes the clothes out in a field? And, and they show some car either going up the Blue Ridge Parkway or through the desert at these high speeds where there's nothing around, never in some tight, confined traffic jam. Look, you can mark tribulation off the list. And you can mark distress off the list. Then he adds a very closely related word to tribulation, and it's translated persecution. Do you see it there? It's not as intense as tribulation, but it's enough to knock a lot of people off center. The Greek word persecution means to be rejected, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be abandoned, to be mistreated. In fact, in the parable of the sower, Jesus raises the word persecution to describe the man on rocky soil who comes close to becoming a Christian but does not. Why? Because of persecution. Listen to what Mark records. In a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. There, there's an emotional response. They come to a church like this, they get excited, their, their heart is stirred. Luke adds, and they believe for a while, but he's referring to belief here, not here. And it's important to distinguish the context of the use of the word pastuo in the New Testament. They immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises, because of the word, they immediately fall away. Some people start coming to a church like this, and they are converted. And their friends say, what happened to you? You're fanatical now. You're one of those born-again people. What are you, in some kind of a cult? You don't come out and party with us and booze it up and sex it up? What's your problem, pal? And more and more, there's growing opposition for the person who's genuinely regenerated by the Spirit and changed by the Spirit of God. Look, you can hardly attend a church like this without experiencing some kind of opposition and persecution. The word is used to describe ridicule and, and, and mockery, like Paul and Barnabas knew at Pisidian Antioch. Listen to these words. Luke writes for us from Acts 13. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instig instigated a persecution, same word as in Romans 8, against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now, sticks and stones of persecution can hurt you, but I'm telling you, they cannot divide you or sever you from the love of Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus taught that with persecution actually comes blessing. Blessed, we like to say blessed. For some reason, when we get to the Beatitudes, we go to the Old English, blessed. But it's blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, same word, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Don't go home with your head between your legs sucking your thumb. Why rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Mark persecution off the list. It cannot possibly sever you from God's love. How about famine? Can famine remove you from the love of Christ? Well, God promises to supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. 
But because we live in a fallen world, Christians can come under the same difficulties sometimes that the unbeliever does. And sometimes when the unbeliever experiences difficulties like famine, God has their attention. When you're staring at death in the face, sometimes the only way to look is up, and God has his people in the midst of that. Why? As a witness to proclaim that there's life beyond the grave where God's voice boxes that people might believe. And so God sees through an eternal lens. He sees the long view, and sometimes he knows it's better to have an empty stomach than to have a lost soul for all of eternity. So you can cross famine off the list. That can't separate you from the love of Christ. How about nakedness? Now, I know the words famine and nakedness are virtually unheard of in the American church. Not having enough food to eat is somewhat obscure to us as Americans. Not having enough clothing to wear, well, that's pretty weird because we take piles of our clothing and we bring them to the goodwill because we've got so many in our closets. But large numbers of God's people around the world don't have what we have. Many have been forced out of Muslim communities with barely the clothes on their back. I think of Paul in that dirty, dark, damp prison and he is cold and he asked Timothy to bring his cloak. Paul is reminding us that when these things happen, this is not a sign that God no longer loves us. How about peril? Can peril separate you from the love of Christ? Now, the Greek word for peril means dangers or hazards or threats. And I suppose if anyone could speak with authority about perils, it was the Apostle Paul. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 11. In journeys often... In perils, same identical word, translated dangers in some of your texts. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Earlier in the same letter, he described these perils as momentary light affliction. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In other words, Paul evaluated this life in light of the next. And so he said, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When I read verses like 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, you were beaten. Paul, you were starved. Paul, you were lashed. Paul, you were stoned. Paul, you were, you were pickled in the Mediterranean Sea. You were scorned. You were run out of synagogues, out of towns. You were despised. You were hated. And Paul calls it all momentary light affliction. Now, most of us have never even broken a fingernail for Christ, much less the kinds of dangers that he's describing. What was it that allowed the Apostle Paul to have such a perspective? He lived with eternity in mind. He took the heartache of this life, and he put it out there in light of the eternal glory to come. He's already said here in Romans 8:18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider, the King James says, I reckon. It's a mathematical term. He's already used it in Romans the sixth chapter. It was a bookkeeping term where you put to one's account, you add up all these, you add up all these. And Paul says, when I add up the glories to come, anything I can go through in this life is at best momentary light affliction. They don't even compare with the glory that is yet to be revealed. That's a big biblical axiom. You can count on it. You can stand on it. You can cross perils off your list of something that can separate you from Christ's love. Let's keep reading verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, if you read the list carefully, and if you know the life of the apostle Paul through his epistles, in the book of Acts, he had already experienced every one of these seven things except the last one, the sword. But he will experience that in a matter of months after Nero takes his head off. 
Missiologists predict that every year some 600 to 700,000 believers worldwide meet death through the sword. But what did Jesus tell us? Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both bodies, both soul and body in hell. So you can mark sword off the list. Paul's comprehensive statement is clear. Not anyone nor anything can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no difficulty that you can think of that can change the unfaltering, unchanging, eternal, everlasting love that God has for you. And so to prove this, just to remind us, he quotes Psalm 44 here in verse 36. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, if you know Psalm 44, then you know it depicts the persecution and hatred of pagan Gentiles against the Hebrew people. And they, the Hebrew people, were being derided. They were made a laughing stock. They were being hated. But the psalmist is reminding us that God was there through all of it. Though he had not yet experienced death, it was like death could come at any time. That's how much they were hated. Paul spoke of that, how he carried about in his own body this concept of death. For your sake, meaning because of our love for you, O God, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're serving you. But look what they're doing to us. And Paul can take this verse, and he can apply it not only to himself, but to the Romans who are about to come under the Neronian persecutions, where through his sadistic, wicked ways, Nero will take the believers and make them literal living torches dipped in oil to light his gardens. Those of us who have never had to suffer physical persecution would do well to take verses 35 to 39 and write out in the margin Hebrews 11, 35 to 39, and put those two passages together. There in Hebrews 11, we find a list of unnamed people who were tortured, who were jeered, who were flogged, who were chained, who were stoned, and some, yes, even sawn in half. And when we see the price that our brothers and sisters in Christ have paid in generations past and are paying now today in the world, there's no room for a shallow, complacent, apathetic walk for Jesus Christ. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. So not pain, not misery, not loss of life can ever separate us from the love of God and so with a shout of victory comes verse 37. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, when you think of an animal that's victorious, you don't typically think of a sheep. You might think of a lion or a cobra or an elephant or an eagle, something mightier, but certainly not sheep. I mean, sheep seem to be defenseless. They don't seem to stand a chance. But please notice in verse 37 that the victory is not in the strength of the sheep. They're in the strength of the shepherd. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. King David in Psalm 23 reminded us that it's not a matter of how weak you are. The critical is how strong your shepherd is. And that's why he is quoting here this great psalm, if you know it. Do you see the words, we overwhelmingly conquer? That's one word in the Greek New Testament. We overwhelmingly conquer. The King James and the ESV render it, we are more than conquerors. Now, it's an interesting word. It's the it's compound word, hupernakomen. Huper, we get our word hyper from it. Usually when we think of the word hyper, we think of it in a negative realm, you know, some nine-year-old who's undisciplined and out of control, hyped up on video games and calmed down on some drug they give them. 
But in Greek, it carries a much different perspective. It's not negative, it's positive. In fact, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, translates it super, and that's not bad. You could translate it super terrific, super fantastic, super wonderful. The second half of the word is nakao, and it means victory. And it comes into English, we pronounce it Nike. We have a, a company called Nike that produces tennis rackets and shoes and caps and all this paraphernalia. It means victory. We love it when our team wins. We don't like it when they lose. But Paul is speaking here of victory. Now, he uses this word nikao, victory, in another place in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in nikao, in victory. John the Apostle uses it in 1 John 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory, nikao, that has overcome the world. But when Paul uses the word nikao, it's not enough to use it alone. This is the only place in all of Scripture where it is attached to this prefix hooper, hooper nikao, hyper nikao, we might say. We overwhelmingly conquer. We are more than conquerors. Another translation says we are more than victorious. Another translation says we have complete victory. The eternal security of the believer is a super victorious kind of truth. And to prove that, he now brings us to the pinnacle of his argument. Don't miss it. Pay attention. Remember, he began this section in verse 28 with our eternal security and we know, and he ends it here in verse 39 with, I am convinced. And God inspires him with these words, I am convinced, to use a perfect tense. A perfect tense describes something that is done and completed in the past and will forever have implications that never change. It's used of the resurrection of Christ. He, in the past, has resurrected and he will forever be resurrected. And so Paul is saying here, I am forever convinced in my mind. There is a deep, settled, unalterable truth that is reverberating in my heart. And so he asks a series of seven questions, whether anything is able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now, in verses 38 and 39, if you look in your Bible, he lists a series of 10 items. Please notice that he lists four contrasting pairs along with two items that stand on their own in order to prove that nothing can separate us from his love. Notice what he's convinced of. He lists these items for I am convinced or I am persuaded or I am sure, depending on your translation, that neither death. Death is feared by so many people because they've never found God's forgiveness. They grieve like those who have no hope. They do not have in their heart the promise of heaven. I was in the Northeast earlier in the week, and I asked the lady waiting on us, she was, I said, are, you're from Egypt? I said, are you a Muslim or are you Coptic? She said, I'm a Coptic Christian. Do you have the assurance that if you die in the next 10 seconds, that heaven is your home? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? The little boy Philo said, I'm not sure, maybe 50. And mom said, I'd like to be sure. There are many people who have no assurance over what happens at death because they've never really fully experienced the forgiveness of God. But Paul is saying, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that death does not separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, in Philippians 4 and in 2 Corinthians 5, he reminds us that death brings us closer to the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He said, I'm betwixt between, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I don't know what's better for you, Philippians. If I stay here in the body, I can serve you and bless you with the gifts God has given me as an apostle. But I prefer to depart and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is absolutely persuaded. He is absolutely sure that death is not a separator from, for the believer. In fact, it's the great unifier. 
because you're present with the Lord. And that's what I preached at my mom's funeral this past week. Death only draws you closer to the presence of the Lord. It's a change of address. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher of God in the 1950s. He spent eight years preaching the book of Romans. And then, unexpectedly, his wife left him in death. Now, by the way, he was a pillar of conservatism to be a Presbyterian. He was a dispensationalist. He believed there was a future for Israel. He was premillennial. He believed that the promises of the coming literal kingdom, that our, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, would come true. He would never be received in Reformed pulpits today. But when his wife died and they were leaving the graveyard, all the kids were in tears and they came up to a red light. And there was this large truck that just cast a shadow over their car. And immediately God provoked Barnhouse with an illustration. And he said to the children, all crying in the back, would you rather be run over by a truck or run over by the shadow of a truck? They said, well, that's easy, Daddy. We'd rather be run over by the shadow of a truck because the shadow cannot hurt you. And he said, and I quote, children, your mother has not been hurt by death. She has just gone through the valley of the shadow of death. Death cannot hurt us. It is only a shadow as we travel into heaven's door. Hey, that's a great truth to ponder. I'm convinced that neither death nor life. Now he moves past the crisis of death into the calamities of life. You mean there's nothing in life that can separate me from this? Paul would say, I'm convinced, absolutely nothing. Put out in the margin, would you, John 10, uh, excuse me, John 6, 37 to 40. I meant to have these slides in there. I left them out uh, by accident, Steve. But John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said. Circle in your mind, all, all that the Father gives me. Remember, he speaks of those who are called and those who are glorified. An unbroken chain, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Marvelous. What's the will of the Father who sent you? This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, without exception, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is an irrefutable promise to everyone who will come to Jesus. He came to earth not to do his will, but to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that every single person, none excluded, that have come to Jesus will absolutely be raised up on the last day. For Jesus not to raise up someone on the last day is not to do the Father's will, but he didn't come to disobey the will of the Father. He came to obey the will of the Father. Listen, to say that you can lose your salvation is really to call the Lord Jesus a liar. And I'm not prepared to do that. Not only is it to call him a liar, it's to call him a sinner, because then he would have disobeyed the Father's will. And not only is it to call him a liar and a sinner, it is to call him weak. To teach that you can lose your salvation, it's to say that Christ is incapable of doing what the Father has called him to do. Now, I don't think most people, understand me, I'm trying not to be cruel here, but most people who deny the doctrine of eternal security have not really thought that through. They're not in their conscience mind calling God weak, a liar, and a sinner. But in essence, theologically, that's precisely what they are doing. Our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that all who come to Him, without a single solitary exception, will be raised up on the last day. Now look at the second contrastive pair, for I am convinced that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, certainly not angels. And I'm sure he feels compelled to mention angels because there was so much weird theology in his day as there are in our day. You go into the bookstores, the few that are left, and there's like a whole half an aisle on angels, and most of it is pure garbage. And sadly, many of the rabbis in that day taught many inaccurate things about angels. They said there was an angel for everything. The winds had an angel. The clouds, the snow, the hail, every blade of grass had an angel. Everything was associated with an angel. Add to that, there was a common belief that maybe angels would rebel against God because they were somewhat ticked off that they were made lower than man. And of course, if you've taken my course on angelology, we know that those holy angels will never fall, that they are eternally secure. The testing period is over just as the believer is eternally secure. And so angels, they're not against us. The Bible pictures them as God's servants for us. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Yes, they are. Angels are God's servant for us who are saved. By the way, that word inherit is an important word in the Greek New Testament. It refers to something that is received as a gift, not something that is earned. That's what the nature of an inheritance is. Salvation is not earned. It is inherited. It is the gift of God called eternal life. And so when someone dies, even the angels of God are still serving them. They're ushered into the presence of the Lord, Luke 16 teaches, by God's holy angels. And when Jesus comes back, Jude reminds us that myriads and myriads, millions upon millions of angels will come back with him. Listen, angels cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Read further into verse 38, nor angels nor principalities. This is a word that's used to describe fallen angels. It's the opposite in the contrasting pair to holy angels. Principalities, the Greek word arche. It's used in Ephesians and in Colossians to describe the demonic world. Can demons who can harass Christians can demons who can sometimes confuse Christians separate us from the love of Christ? No, they cannot. You say, well, how do you know? Are you sure? Because at the cross, Paul wrote, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The cross of the Lord Jesus incapacitated and disabled all of the rebellious fallen demons. And so John can write, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than even he, the evil one, Satan, the chief of all fallen angels who is in the world. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so principalities cannot separate you. Look at the next couplet. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Don't wander. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nothing in the present world can separate you, nor things to come. Again, he's got all bases covered here. There's nothing in the present, nothing in the future that can arise and erase God's unfailing eternal love for you. How about powers, dunamis? It's a slightly different word. It's used of Simon the magician, people, humans with supernatural powers. Could they possibly separate us? No, they cannot, not at all. There's no unbeliever who can curse you, who can cast a spell, who can bewitch you with his sorcery, anything like it. So Paul says no powers have any p control over the believer. Look further, nor height, nor depth will be able to separate you from the love of God. These Greek words for height and for depth are special words, and he's really keen off of Psalm 139, what King David said. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. I can't flee from the presence of God. Neither height nor depth can separate us. As high as you go up and as low as you go down, nothing can separate you, nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath. There is none who can oppose us, nothing 
that can ever stop God's love. Now let that sink in, verse 38 again. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. And just in case I miss something, nor any other created thing, and that includes you because you were created. There is nothing exists that was not created. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you can name something not covered in these categories, you come up to me after this service and I'll give you $1,000. But don't waste your breath because it covers everything in the universe. That's security. He that began a good work in you will absolutely complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And if you will come to the Lord Jesus, he will receive you. And when you come to him, he will secure you. You don't have to hope for some reincarnation. You don't have to try to earn your way to some third heaven. You don't have to work your way out of some purgatory. No, Christ is he who died who's raised, who's seated, who's ascended, who's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and there's nothing that can separate you from His great love. Now, Father, may we be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we might be filled to the fullness of God. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, listen, one day the roll will be called up yonder. He will count all of his sheep. He will call them all by name, and not one will be missing. Everyone born again of the Spirit, will be able to say, present and accounted for, Lord Jesus. I know when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I'm wondering if you will. You can be, but you have to be willing to humble yourself. You have to be willing to own your sin as evil, whether it's adultery or fornication or drunkenness or transgenderism, or homosexuality, or self-righteousness, whatever it is, you have to be willing to call it sin, that God can forgive it and truly change it. Our Father, we thank you that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, on the basis of your death and resurrection, Save me and change me. Thank you that the grace that has appeared is not licensed for evil, but it teaches us, it instructs us who are saved by it to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to want to live holy, to please you, to love you, to obey you with all our hearts. Help us in this new day and in this new week to reflect the Lord Jesus to his honor and glory. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.